Between the ages of about six and 14, my parents dragged me to just about every musical revival that was on Broadway. I didn't quite appreciate it at the time. Oklahoma, King and I, Carousel, a whole bunch more. Although I do have to say that they gave me some touchstones for cultural knowledge that even though I do appreciate the, music, appreciate the musicals now, back then I could even see a few glimmers. Like not too long ago when we got the sad news that Jane Henson, who was married to Jim Henson, and they co-created the Muppets together, that she had died. And I remembered my favorite Muppets moment from the Muppet Show, 1980, and this little creature showed up. I don't know how many of you remember that. That is a caterpillar in galoshes and a trench coat, singing boldly, bravely, you'll never walk alone. The end of Carousel, that stirring affirmation of hope. And I have to say that I think the signature reason that a show like South Park is popular is not that it's crass and funny, because sometimes it's crass and very funny, and sometimes it's crass and just offensive. I think the primary reason that it's so popular is that the two guys who are the driving force behind the show, they were fed, you can tell from the songs they write, a steady diet of musical theater when they were growing up and it's in their bones. And so as much as they can do R-rated, they also can do sweet and melodic and innocent. I think that's at the heart of so many musicals. It's at the heart of this one, you might remember. I was forced to watch the movie of Brigadoon before I was forced to go see the play version of Brigadoon. And this is Gene Kelly in the moment in, not the stage play, but the movie, in which he recognizes he has to leave the mythical land. Just to fill you on Brigadoon, if you don't know too much about it, it is this town in the Scottish Highlands, which to save itself from an ancient curse, Everyone in that town wakes up one day and goes to sleep. And for them, they wake up the next day and everything's natural. But a hundred years have passed. Well, Gene Kelly and his friend, the actor, I can't remember his name, Van Johnson, I think, are traipsing through the countryside in Scotland and come upon this one day out of a hundred years that Brigadoon is alive and they can find it. And because it's just the way of fantastical stories, he falls in love and wants to stay, but then him falling in love with a local creates problems, and against his better instincts, he leaves the one true love of his life. And towards the end of the play, we see the Gene Kelly character back in the midst of an Upper East Side, New York City, 1950s cocktail party where everyone is drunk and self-important and the ego is spread out all over the place. And he is completely miserable. And so hope against hope, he goes back to find the place he had lost. And because this is a fantasy, true love conquers all. And his true love wakes up in the middle of a hundred years sleep and Brigadoon materializes and they all live happily ever after. <laughs> Brigadoon is in this way kind of like the fountain of youth or like the holy grail a number of mythological places that promise us not just limitless years, but an open, full, 
connected heart and way to love. Brigadoon, Fountain of Youth, Holy Grail, the great mythologist Joseph Campbell wrote about the significance of places and quests like these in our lives, and he wrote about the grail. He said, I can feel I'm in that grail castle when I'm living with the people I love, doing what I love. I get that sense of being truly, deeply fulfilled, but by God, I must tell you, it doesn't take much to make me feel that I've lost the grail, that it's gone totally away from me. One way for me to lose the grail is to go to a cocktail party. That's my idea of not being with the grail at all. Now, I don't think he's saying there's any problem with parties or cocktail parties. I think what he is saying is that in arenas in our life in which we are more likely to puff up ourselves, encounter other people's egos, projections of self-importance, a sense that I'm conveying an image to the world, in those kinds of places we lose connection with our hearts. And in recognizing that, we can turn towards deeper ways of connecting with our own heart's true calling, with the grail quest, if you will, and also in more profound ways with other people's lives as well. That's what this song is about today. This song originally written by Bob Dylan in 1963, My Back Pages. See, Bob Dylan was finding himself getting pigeonholed. He was the spokesperson. All the young folk singers looked up to him. He was the voice of a generation. Just imagine yourself. People are calling you the voice of a generation. He fled from that in terror. He didn't want to be the spokesperson. He didn't want to be one thing. He didn't want to be the new Woody Guthrie. He wanted to be himself. And this is where actually Bob Dylan, the poet, is actually a much better guide than Bob Dylan, the person, because Bob Dylan, the person, wrote a whole bunch of these songs that are like a big F you, a big kiss off to the folk movement that wanted to claim him, even if he didn't want to be claimed by him. You might, if you're a Dylan fan, you might know Positively Forestry, Please Crawl Out Your Window, or Restless Farewell. All these songs, like my back pages in which he tries to say, don't claim me, I want to be free. And so the Bob Dylan, the person, is kind of angry, kind of embittered. But in this song, I think we are invited not to angryness or bitterness, but to that recurring refrain, ah, but I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. I'm younger than that now. Now, of course, we know that's a logical impossibility, right? I mean, we're getting older. I'm getting older as I stand here right now. <laughs> but even if it's a logical impossibility in terms of our bodies, it is very much a soulful reality. And it's one that has spoken to me deeply because I was one of those kids, and maybe you were this as well too, where people had this one phrase that they told me a lot about myself, and I soaked it up. I couldn't get enough of this when people told me, Ken, you're an old soul. Oh, I love that. Because I wanted to be mature. I wanted to be older than my years. I wanted to be more knowing. I wanted to grow up as quickly as I could. Until I realized that that was a double-edged sword of a compliment. Because it meant that outwardly, I wanted to appear older. I wanted to appear more mature than I was. But inwardly, I was my own age. And protecting the mess that I was meant projecting 
a certain false reality of myself out into the world. It's one of the reasons that I took so early to drinking. And this phrase, ah, but I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. I know that more now ever in the seven and a half years that I have been sober. Because I'm no longer questing for premature maturity. Because premature maturity is not maturity. It's just putting on a false face. It's just putting a front out to the world. A superficial recognition of who we are. I think this phrase, this invitation to recognize that we can, in matters of heart, in matters of the spirit, be younger now than we ever once were, is particularly important to those of us who are approaching or already in or maybe past this thing called midlife. The second half of life. Some people like to say it starts around the age of 15 for some people. (laughs) Actually starts around the age of 35 or 40 for most of us. And of course there are ways to have a silly midlife crisis. To recognize that we're growing older and we don't like it. And our bodies are starting to change and maybe even decay a little bit. And so we engage in all kind of things that protect the outward person. We just attend to the outward appearance of our lives. We buy things we can't afford. We have affairs that wreck our relationships. And of course, there's nothing wrong with attending to the outer person. It's just when we do it to the exclusion of the inner person because that's truly what this second half of life is all about. It's recognizing that we have this deep invitation to not just pay attention to the outer presentation of the person, our accomplishments, what we know, our authority, the power we can wield, but instead turn inward into our lives and into our hearts. Carl Jung, who more than any other psychologist knew the reality of the spiritual life, even if you couldn't lay it on a slab, even if you couldn't lay it on the experiment table and take it apart. Dr. Jung said this, he said, I have treated many hundreds of patients among those in the second half of life. That is to say, and you can disagree with this if you want, those that are over the age of 35, There has not been one whose problem in the last resort was not that of finding a true spiritual outlook in life. It is safe to say that every one of my second half of life patients that I worked with fell ill because he or she had lost that which all the living religions of every age have offered to their followers. And none of them ever really healed who did not regain Regain, an important word, a spiritual outlook upon their life. This invitation of the second half of life for those of us already in it or for those of us approaching it is to recognize that the true mastery of life is not the mastery of knowledge. It is not the expression of our authority. It is not the expression of our power over others. The true mastery of our lives comes in cultivating our capacity for insight, for a true deep knowing of ourselves that is not about finding the final truth about life. It is not about fixing if we think we are broken it is simply about cultivating that possibility which is done moment by moment of generating an appreciative awareness of our lives it is about so much more than content it is about so much more than knowing things this is one of the classic mistakes that i see over and over and over again people make in the second half of life that the accumulation of more and more and more knowledge or more possessions or more things will make them happy that is not the invitation of the second half of life 
This is what Dylan, even at the tender age in his 20s when he wrote this, is talking about with the invitation to be younger than that now. I was so much older than the past, but we can be younger than that now. We can enter this invitation to be younger now by embracing our unknowing, by embracing the things that we haven't figured out yet, and not in a spirit of inquisition. There's a whole difference between inquisition, wanting to know as an inquisition, I am owed this answer, I must know it or I will feel incomplete, or in a spirit of inquisitiveness. When I think about inquisition as a way to be in the presence of what we don't know, I think of this fellow, Homer Simpson, who after being at a chili cook-off eats the Mexican insanity pepper and heads off on a vision quest, guided in the single best casting choice ever by his spirit guide, a wolf, with the voice of Johnny Cash. Now, Homer, not being very smart, or for that matter, very wise, doesn't want to spend the time on the vision quest. He wants to know where it ends. He wants to get to the destination. And so he says angrily, look, wolf, you give me some inner peace or I will mop the floor with you. It's that kind of attitude. It's that kind of attitude that says, have to know it now. That is an inquisition of our lives. The old phrase goes, it is curiosity that killed the cat. That would be an inquisition as well too. But you know, there's a second half to that phrase. Curiosity killed the cat. Any of you know it? You were here at 930. That doesn't make any sense. That is what they call cheating. But satisfaction brought the cat back to life. That is inquiry as inquisitiveness. The yearning to know more about our lives simply because we yearn to be in touch. Not to, as is very often our cultural impulse, to take what we learn and ask ourselves the immediate next question. What will it get me? (laughs) What can I apply this to? What can I earn from this? Who can I impress with this? But to say simply, learning and knowing and unknowing is its own reward. I mean, I do not have this mastered. I mean, I, I know what it's like to start to feel the hair to go up here, and that's why I wear it down here like this, to cover it up. <laughs> I'm vain. The knees hurt or the skin dries out. We start to see wrinkles or we are so vain we won't get ourselves bifocal, so we have to look down at the page like this because we can't possibly, you know. Eventually, I'll admit that my eyes are losing and get bifocals. But to keep in the midst of our bodily changes, knowing that, yes, in some ways we are getting older, but we can maintain that heartful capacity to be younger than we once were is to keep the quest in the middle of our questions. I mean, I remember the moment, the moment, one of the most important ones in my life, when I told uh, the rabbi who had bar mitzvahed me and bat mitzvahed my sister and buried my mother that I was leaving Judaism to become a Unitarian Universalist minister. And I think perhaps because he had no idea what to say, he had this big, bushy, rabbinical beard, even for a reform rabbi, and he kind of stroked it, nothing like my perma-stubble that I have here, big, bushy beard. And he said, well, Kenny, (laughs) 
Only person ever called me that. Well, at least I know of that I liked. He said, what well, for you, Kenny, the only tragedy would be not to quest. Wow, how gracious of him. By the way, those are the last words he ever said to me. He shunned me, literally shunned me after that. Stopped speaking to me. Met him years later, shook my hand, had no recognition or portrayed no recognition or conveyed no recognition of who I was. And it took me years to get over that. But I have now. And so I recognize the gift of what he gave me. In the midst of our questions about ourselves, maintain the quest. The quest to be deeply in touch with our lives, not to turn everything into a learning that we can just make a means to some other end. It's one of the reasons that I like to keep my theology really simple. Theology can become so abstract. I mean, the best theology I ever read was poetry. I've read a lot of theology in my life and rarely has it fed my heart or fed my soul, which is one of the reasons that my favorite theology, which literally means God talk, comes from Thich Nhat Hanh, a tradition in which they don't talk about God that much. And he says the concept of God can keep us from touching the God of non-fear, wisdom, and love. I mean, our ideas about ourselves, our ideas about life, our ideas about spirituality can keep us from getting to the very heart's of wholeness that so many of us seek. This is why the most important line in this song, my back pages, is for me. Yes, my guard stood hard when abstract threats, too noble to neglect, deceived me into thinking I had something to protect. Good and bad, I defined these terms quite clear, no doubt, somehow. Ah, but I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now. I love that phrase. Deceive me into thinking I had something to protect. This is the ego. Wanting us to pay the ego protection racket. What are we protecting ourselves against? The feeling that the ego is threatened. And if the ego gets threatened, you know what it wants? It wants more payment. <laughs> ego protection racket shows up in our life and we are afraid to show to anyone what's honestly going on with us. Ego protection racket shows up when we have never, or at least not for a very long time, answered honestly that question, how are you doing? And you just by rote say, I'm fine. Even when your heart is breaking. Or we don't make inquiry with other people, asking them how they are truly doing. This is one of Joseph Campbell's, the great mythologist's favorite story in the grail. About Percival, a young knight. A young knight who is trained to be strong as a young knight is and goes off on that quest for a grail, probably thinking the riches that it will get him. And he comes upon this land, this ancient, old, dying land. And at the center of this ancient, old, dying land is a king in the middle of the castle who just gets sicker and sicker and sicker and yet never dies. And everything around this king is withering. And young Parsifal, even though he wants to ask, how is it with you? He doesn't because that's not what knights do. Knights put up the veneer of invulnerability. And so he heads off on his quest, and this being a mythological story, he encounters difficulty after difficulty after difficulty after difficulty until finally he finds himself back in the castle with that king, and he asks the question that he should have the first time. He says, King, what ails you? What's wrong? And with that, that one little question, the king's color comes back into his face and he springs to life and the whole 
kingdom is alive once again. This is younger than that now. This is what happens when we refuse to pay or to play the ego protection racket. When we don't hoard or waste our lives, but rather invest ourselves fully in ourselves with the people we love doing what feeds the soul. This is what makes new life again, whether we are incredibly happy or whether we are incredibly sad. This is not about reaching some place in which we are untroubled by the world. That is not younger than that now. Sometimes it means delving into the problems of our own heart and the problems of our own worlds and the sadness. There's a, a Zen story from a Zen master, Shako Soen, who is told to be a wise old man. And one day, Soen is walking through a village in the countryside and he hears coming through, coming from one of the huts in the village, the sound of weeping and wailing and sadness and mourning. And Shaku Soen surveys the scene and sits down in the middle of the weeping and starts to sob himself. Now one of the people beholding this scene is shocked. But Shaku Soen, you are a Zen master. You are supposed to be beyond this. And Shaku Soen, still talking through his sobbing, said, it is this, my tears that puts me beyond such things. He's willing to enter into life where life touches him. That is the only way that any of us can make any so-called progress or real growth in this life. And by the way, the same exact lesson goes for joy. It means recognizing when we can put down our predetermined plans and allow life to touch us. Not too long ago, I was in a Starbucks and there was uh, a guy across the uh, across the the, the uh, restaurant from me, and I could he, he I trained my attention on him. It wasn't an accident. I trained my attention on him. He was reading Thomas Merton. If you want to get my attention, read a mystic progressive monk who was really interested in the bridges between East and West and Zen Buddhism and uh, mystical Catholicism. Read that in public, and you will draw my attention right away. But here's the thing, what really drew my attention was not ultimately that I was reading Thomas Merton. It was this. Trying not to stare, I recognized that at one point he put his book down. Because on the table directly opposite him, holding over his mom's shoulder, was a baby. That the old Thomas Merton reader started to play peekaboo with. He was younger than that now. We all can be younger than that now and allow life to flow toward us and out from within us. When we put our books and more importantly, our guards down. I want to close with this from William Ellery Channing who's one of the brightest lights in our wonderful Unitarian Universalist tradition. And too often this is understood intellectually and, and you can get it now. I don't mean these words in an intellectual understanding. I mean them in the younger than that now understanding. He says, I call that mind free. I call that mind, and I would say an ad heart. I call that mind free which sets no bounds to its love and so wherever they are seen sympathizes with suffering and delights in virtue. I call that mind and heart 
free, which opens itself to light from wherever it may come, which receives new truth as an angel from heaven. Bless you. And so today, I hope you encounter one thing that you were unsure of. I hope you encounter an experience that you can't immediately say, I know the meaning of this. That you can engage your unknowing with a spirit of inquisitiveness. Get in touch with what that unknowing feels like to you. Open up the heart and ask yourself, maybe, just maybe, that this is what an angelic presence really feels like. May you be ripe for unknowing this day. And may you be younger at the end of this day than when this day began. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. O oh, divine invitation into the flow of life into that only slightly hidden heart of wholeness that is offered for each and every one of us. May we recognize that true flourishing comes not in the mastery of power, of our ability to control, but instead the true mastery of life comes in our ability, like seed to flower, to open to flourish, and to grow into the maturity that is ours that knows itself not as oldness or finishedness, but as the ripe and full fruit of being in the presence of our lives as our lives are happening. Amen.